0: Hello, Bridgeway. For those of you who are wondering who I am, I am Scott Dirksen. I'm on the elder team here. And once in a while, they let me do this. As I was researching Psalm 74, I wanted to come up with a catchy title. Here's some of them. The Forgotten Psalm. The Ignored Psalm. The Snubbed Psalm. The Overlooked Psalm. The disregarded psalm, the unnoticed psalm, the unsung psalm. You get the idea. I was wondering why this psalm gets so little attention. Possible reasons include the fact that the psalm does not contain praise the Lord or hallelujah. It does not contain a complaint to God about the personal life of the psalmist. In fact, there's nothing personal in it at all. The psalm does not contain a call to repentance for the community or for the psalmist. The psalm does not contain a description of God's majesty. It does not contain a command to give thanks to the Lord. You start to realize, "Hmm, maybe that's why nobody wants to pay attention. However, it does contain how long how long is a key question in this psalm? And it's found 18 times in the book of Psalms. And the question why is found three times in Psalm 74 and 24 times throughout the book of Psalms. So it's not completely in left field. Another key reason is that this is a psalm of lament. Psalms of lament... Tend to garner less attention in Christian churches. I guess we don't like to focus on the negativity. Now, the great thing about this section of scripture we call the Psalms is not only does God talk to us, but we talk to God. There's a psalm for everything, there's a psalm when you are on top of the world. And there's a psalm when you are in the deepest pit. There's a psalm when you're overflowing with praise to God, thanksgiving. It's overwhelming. And there's a psalm for when you want to shake your fist at God and say, Hey, God, what's going on here? This makes no sense. For those of us who grew up in church, there was often an underlying idea that if you're feeling troubled, if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling sad for an extended period of time, there must be something wrong with you. You're lacking faith. If that's true, why are there so many psalms classified as laments? Depending on how you define lament... Somewhere between one-third and one-half of the 150 psalms are called songs of lament. So it would appear that pouring out our hearts to God and giving our troubles to the Lord as an act of worship is a real thing. Because we'll always have pain. maybe not always physical pain, but pain is inevitable. And thanks to the Psalms of Lament, we can explore how followers of God deal with this very human experience. There is no safe space for a Christian. They have them on university campuses. They're very popular. You go to the safe space, nobody will hurt you. Nobody will disagree with you. Nobody will wear clothes that make you uncomfortable or have a skin color that triggers you. It's all an attempt to escape reality. But that is not what God is offering his followers. He does not offer an escape from reality. God understands reality. He created reality. And Jesus lived it, and walked the same dusty roads that we walk. So I I thought I should maybe offer five reasons why we have these psalms of lament. Five general reasons. Uh, Number one, they're a form of protest at the apparent injustice in the world. Number two, They are a way of processing emotion. Three, they are a place to voice confusion through life's complexities. Four, they are a way to restore sacred dignity to human suffering. And five, they lead us on a path toward petition and prayer. Before we get into the text for today, I want to ask one more question. Why do we use metaphors? Most of us use metaphors without even realizing that we do it. But the metaphor may be the most important tool, important device in the songwriter's toolbox. Notice my use of the word toolbox? It's not literal. It's a metaphor. Three reasons why metaphors are so handy. One, metaphors give reasons, sorry, give readers a picture in their minds. As they say, a picture is worth a thousand words, and a reader is more likely to feel the message. Two, metaphors help readers understand a concept, even without referring directly to the concept. A simple everyday event can be used to better appreciate something more complex, And we see Jesus doing this often with the use of parables. And three, metaphors simply make the writing more interesting. So as we get into the text of Psalm 74 and as we go through it, consider how the psalmist is using metaphors and how it influences the message and how it enters our hearts and minds because of the metaphors. Before we dive in, a little historical context. In 587 BC, the Babylonians attacked all that remained of God's people, destroyed the capital city of Jerusalem, obliterated the temple, removed the king, the leaders, the priests, and most of the other citizens of Judah, transporting them roughly 1,000 kilometers away to Babylonia, where they were to live as strangers without a home. So now, as one of my favorite YouTubers, Officer Brandon Tatum, likes to say, let's get into this. Psalm 74 divides almost too obviously into three sections. So section 1 is verses 1 to 11. I've titled this section, Grieving. Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Remember the nation you purchased long ago? The people of your inheritance, whom you redeemed? Mount Zion, where you dwelt. Turn your steps toward these ever Lasting ruins. All this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary. Your foes roared in this place where, they, where you met with us. They set up their standards as signs. They behaved like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. They smashed all the carved paneling with their axes and hatchets. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. We are given no signs from God. No prophets are left. None of us knows how long this will be. How long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. You definitely feel the pain of the psalmist. There can be no debate as to the emotional state He is in. About four years ago, my parents moved out of their home in Borden and into Saskatoon. They had lived in this house where I grew up 40 years. The house and the yard and the garden, they had become too much for them to manage. So they moved out and we were happy for them but also a little sad. My father had built this house, and Mom and Dad had taken such good care of it, the trees and the flowers, the garden. It was a big garden. And it was a wonderful place for their grandchildren to run and explore. And now it had been sold to someone else. Just imagine how we would feel my siblings, my nieces, my nephews, even my own children, if we were to go back there and find out that the place had been totally trashed. Someone had taken a spray can and written all sorts of profanity on the walls, on the garage door, on the driveway. Trees had all been chopped down. The grass had been burned. And it looked like some very large machine had just driven over anything that was left. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be able to stop myself. I would be weeping. And you might imagine a place in your own life like that that is dear to you and how you would feel if it was abused in such a manner. You might have a little um, small way of relating to the people of Seattle and what they've been going through, but even that is just a small taste of what the psalmist has gone through here. The entire nation would have been feeling unbelievably low and would be wondering what their purpose even is for living the feeling would be unparalleled loss this dwelling place of god on earth had been ransacked by unfeeling men drunk with rage and delusions of power and now god has given us nothing no sign no prophet how long is this going to go on how How long is this going to go on? God, take your hand out of your pocket. Why don't you do something? Why don't you destroy these men? They deserve it. Along with the obvious emotion in this uh, text, in these first 11 verses, I want you to notice something else. The psalmist doesn't focus on himself. On how this is affecting him. He's sad. He's obviously overwhelmingly sad. But his focus is on God. On the name of the Lord. It's hard to ignore the use of pronouns in this psalm. You and your are used repeatedly. The writer seems much less interested in his own troubles. And he's more concerned that God is being mocked. That God's enemies are behaving like animals, and winning, that God's people are being hurt and God's temple has been destroyed. It's a little humbling because most of the time when something happens in our lives, what is our first reaction? How does this affect me? What is this going to cost me? But the psalmist is more concerned about God's name being trampled than his own. In the previous psalm that Nick preached on last week, the psalmist found understanding and clarity for his doubts by entering the sanctuary. By entering into the presence of God. By entering the house of worship. But now there is no sanctuary. There is no temple. There's no place for God. There are no prophets. There are no miracles. It's all gone. There was just one temple. So to see it destroyed would have been very painful. Fortunately, the psalm doesn't end there. We're going to move on to section two, which I've titled Believing, verses 12 to 17. But God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It was you who split the Open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours, and yours also the night. You established the sun and moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. One of the things that Psalms do, and not just Psalm 74, but Psalms in general, is to bring order to our disordered affections. And this middle section of the Psalm does just that. It brings order to the disordered confusion that we read about in the first 11 verses. Verse 12 is central verse. There's 11 verses before it and 11 after it. This is a poetic device that is sometimes used in the Bible. That the central idea, the main idea, the main message is right in the middle. Another example of this, in case you're wondering if there's other places you can see this, is the book of Lamentations, which is addressing the very same problem of psalm 74 the destruction of jerusalem the destruction of the temple and the exile of god's people it's not a very encouraging book it's pretty depressing and there's five chapters the middle chapter chapter three the middle two verses of that chapter read like this because of the lord's great love we are not consumed His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Of course, where we get that famous hymn. So despite all this destruction and sorrow, God is still not going to allow his people to be destroyed. His compassions are still there. And he is faithful. There's a very interesting metaphor in this section that many people are debating and have continued to debate what exactly is this about. And I believe what the psalmist is doing is he's looking back at two key events, the creation and the exodus, where God is the king, the maker, the creator, and God is the savior and redeemer. This idea of the Leviathan, the sea monster, is very prevalent in that time. The Canaanites, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, they all had their myths about this creature and what it signified. And you can find many places in Scripture where Job, Isaiah, the psalmists, other prophets, even the book of Revelation are trying to understand what this means. the leviathan, the dragon of the sea, the monster in the waters, the bringer of chaos and disorder. Depending on which scripture you're looking at, it can refer to the original creation, it can refer to a pagan nation like Egypt, and sometimes it refers to this ever-present conflict between God and the forces of evil. The psalmist chooses this metaphor because... He wants to make an impact. He could just say God made everything and God saved us from the Egyptians. Well, that would be true, but it doesn't have the punch that this Leviathan image does. So he visualizes the destruction of the sea monster. I wish we had more time to go through this. It's fascinating how this plays throughout Scripture. But as we can see in this passage, that after he destroys the Leviathan quite easily, he establishes boundaries. God makes boundaries. He sets limits. And not just physical boundaries, but moral boundaries. We live in a world where moral boundaries are being thrown away like yesterday's garbage. And not just outside the church, inside the church too. And, if we're honest, in our own hearts. We struggle with this darkness, with this Leviathan that wants to control us. Much like Gollum in Lord of the Rings, where there was always this debate. The good Gollum and the bad Gollum trying to regain control. And in the midst of this conflict, we can know, as we read in verse 12, that God is my king and he's working salvation On the earth. The underlying message here God will not allow evil to get the final word. This leads us to the final section, part three, which I've titled Pleading. So grieving, believing, and pleading. Verse 18 Remember how the enemy mocked you, Lord, how foolish people have reviled your name. Do not hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts. Do not forget the lives of your afflicted people forever. Have regard for your covenant, because haunts of violence fill the dark places of the land. Do not let, do not let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. May the poor and needy praise your name. Rise up, God. Defend your cause Remember how fools mock you all day long? Do not ignore the clamor of your adversaries, the uproar of your enemies, which rises continually. If I was to summarize this third section, it would be something like this. God, please, act, act, so the world may know. Do something about the injustice that surrounds us. We're grieving, evil is everywhere. Please, we're begging you, remember your promises. So let me ask you, would you describe yourself as oppressed, poor, needy? Well, you are. You might have job security, you might have a boat, You might have a long list of mutual funds. But are you desperate for God to act? And I'm saying this to myself as much as anybody else. How much am I desperate for God to act in my life and in this church and in this country and in the world? Are we making the choice to believe in the maker and the Redeemer. Do we recall what God has done? Jesus died for all of us. He allowed the monsters to have their way with him, to crush him. What would the disciples have been feeling during that time? Of course, we know the end of the story is the resurrection of Jesus, his power over death. We just studied Hebrews recently here at Bridgeway, and we learned that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forever. COVID-19 is simply the latest thing in a long list of uncertainties in the history of this world. But if we believe in God who is the king from old we have certainty. God has not changed. This past week on CNN Don Lemon claimed Jesus was not perfect. And about a a week earlier His co-anchor, Chris Cuomo, told Americans, if you believe in one another and you do the right thing for your community and for yourself, things will get better. You don't need help from above. It's within us. This is popular teaching. And it's even made its way into our churches, into our Bible colleges and seminaries. But it's wrong. It's just another example of how we need to be diligent in testing what we hear, what we see, against the word of God. Or we will also be misled into these false ideas. Speaking of the news, last month a BBC headline read, 27 police officers injured during largely peaceful anti-racism protests in London. As critics rightfully pointed out, how can a peaceful protest result in so many injuries? Unfortunately for the BBC, there was video evidence. A policewoman was thrown from her horse when it got spooked after a Peaceful protester hit the animal with a brick. This lady was hospitalized. She had a shattered shoulder, cracked ribs, and a punctured lung. Just imagine if it wasn't peaceful. Of course, so much of what we call news is little more than a narrative that must be pushed at all costs. Despite the evidence, despite experiences of people, despite the crime stats, this is the world we live in. And we need to ask, how much of all that is just distraction? If we watch all the bad things happening over there somewhere, we forget about what the psalmist calls everlasting ruins that are in our own lives in our own hearts and in our churches everlasting ruins we are broken people we need God to act to fulfill his promises Jesus said I will build my church do we believe he has the power to do that As we read Psalm 74, we can, you know, read it and say, well, that's interesting. Or, can we truly grieve at the ruins of God's people? Can we believe confidently in the power of God? To reform boundaries, to destroy the monsters of chaos. And can we commit ourselves to plead to petition, to beg, and to go on pleading and praying, asking God to fulfill his promises, despite the ruins, despite the destruction we see and we feel. In this psalm, we are called to experience enduring faith, desperate faith, even in the face of the silence of God.